Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. So let's go to Matthew uh, chapter 12, and we'll, we'll uh, take a look in Jonah in just a few moments. Matthew chapter 12. Um, sometimes we act as if um, our beliefs are foisted upon us, like we don't have any choice in the matter. But I want to challenge us today that uh, God holds us accountable, and he holds us responsible for our beliefs, that we have to respond to what he's given us in terms of uh, evidence and information knowledge of himself, and then we can take that and, and people can weave their own story with it, can't they? We've seen, uh, as we'll, we'll look at in just a moment, but uh, we're not called to, uh, to there, there are challenges to faith in life. We don't live in a, a life where there's uh, faith in a vacuum, where it's just all perfect all the time. Uh, God is perfect, but our belief in him sometimes is difficult. Can anybody relate to that? That there's opportunities for uh, doubts to come in, and sometimes uh, even the best Christians can waver at times. Um, I think of John the Baptist, how he sends his disciples to Jesus. John the Baptist already announced, this is the one that we've been looking for. We've been waiting for him. And then he sends his disciples and says, are you the one that we expect, or should we look for another? So that tells me that maybe things didn't exactly fit his vision of what the Messiah should look like, and so he wavered a little bit. But uh, I do want to say uh, from the outset that God is wise, and Jesus is wise, and if we'll, we'll trust him, we'll find that he'll demonstrate that he's worthy of our allegiance and our obedience. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 uh, through 3 it's talking about Jesus about 700 years before his birth. And it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. This is talking about a kind of supernatural wisdom that's given to Jesus. And, and uh, it's this kind of wisdom that shows that he is trustworthy. And so as we look at our passage this morning here in Matthew 12, uh, we'll talk about what it, it says here, and then I want to refer back a little bit to something that happened prior to it. Look at verse 38 with me, Matthew 12. And verse 38, and I'm reading out of the NIV again this morning. This, uh, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judge at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something or someone greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sh- uh, the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for 
She came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something or someone greater than Solomon is here. This is a, a simple passage. We have a request and a response, a request from uh, the religious leaders and a response from Jesus. And it tells us a, it tells us a lot in just these few verses. Uh, the thing that we ought to note is if you look back here in uh, chapter 12 to the verses just prior to this, Jesus has cast out a demon out of uh, a man and uh, now he responds to some charges. So this comes right after the deliverance of a demon-possessed man. This, uh, this man had physical disabilities that came from being under the power of a demon. Uh, and so Jesus cast this demon out, and uh, the people were astonished, and they started to ask this question, could this be, could this be the son of David? So uh, they're starting to ask the question. They're not sure. Even though this is not the first thing that Jesus has done in terms of miracles, they're not sure exactly about him, but they're starting to ask the question, and that, that's a good thing. The Pharisees, though, had another theory about why Jesus was able to cast out the demon. They, of course, take the evidence, and then they add their own spin to it. And this is what I'm talking about, is that faith and belief uh, has an element of the will in it. Because the same information, the same evidence can be interpreted from two different perspectives depending on whether our heart is Godward or selfward. Okay? So we can, we can take and we can distort that information and use it in a way that's either self-serving or God-serving. Okay? So it's not a distortion to use it in a God-serving way, by the way. I, I wanted to make that clear. But their, their theory is Jesus was empowered by Beelzebul. Okay? So, uh, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and their claim is Jesus is using demonic power to cast out demons, to drive out demons. So they made up their mind about him. And Jesus' response to this, we haven't even really come into our direct passage here, but Jesus' response to this is that he shows how feeble that logic is. How does the kingdom of darkness benefit if the kingdom of darkness is going around delivering people from the kingdom of darkness. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, I think if you go to Washington, the, uh, either the Lincoln Memorial, I saw it somewhere, uh, has Abraham Lincoln credited with a house divided cannot stand. But Abraham Lincoln didn't come up with that. He got it from the Bible. He got it from Jesus. Jesus says a house divided cannot stand. It cannot stand. It cannot endure. And then he goes to work on those who are speaking against him, those who refused to see what was right before, before them, and, and they were beginning to demand signs. It's not that Jesus is altogether against signs, as we will look at, but uh, they're asking for signs to be a smokescreen so that they can continue in their lives of unbelief. They don't want to believe Jesus because believing Jesus, believe it or not, makes demands and claims upon us. If you believe Jesus, that means that if you really believe him the way the Bible intends for us to believe him, then we have to understand that he is to be Lord, not just Savior or not just somebody that helps us through a difficult day. He does that. He helps us through difficult days. But he's so much more than that. He calls for us to live a life of allegiance in which we follow out his wisdom in day-to-day. And as we do that, we're transformed into different kinds of people. Now, there's an immediate transformation that comes when we say yes to Jesus. We call that being born again. There's a supernatural work. 
that starts in our life. The seed of God, you could put, you'd call it that, is placed within us. The presence of God, his, his own presence comes to live within by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So immediately a change takes place, but then beyond that, there are behavioral patterns that are uprooted and realigned with God's purposes as we follow out his wisdom. You might be frustrated in your, your Christian life. I've been frustrated, and I, I know a lot of Christians have been frustrated, that our growth is not happening as quick as we would like it to. Anybody been frustrated by that? Like, I would, be, I would like to be further along with God than I am right now. And especially when you're, you're first a Christian, if you don't have the thing that I had where I thought, man, God's given me a special dispensation. I'm growing fast, and like, I don't have to go through the normal process as everybody else because I'm called to be a pastor, and then you hit a hard reality at some point or another. And so there's this thought that's not happening as quick. But as we follow Jesus and we, we live out his wisdom in the day-to-day, it changes us and produces a different kind of life. Okay, There's wisdom in following Jesus. So now they're requesting a sign. Okay, In the passage we just read, they, the, the, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see... We want to see a sign from you. Uh, in Luke, the same story tells us the crowds around Jesus were increasing when this happened. It mentions nothing about the Pharisees and the uh, scribes. It just says that Jesus says, as the crowd is growing around him, a wicked and perverse generation demands a sign. Uh, I think in Mark, his parallel of this, it just mentions the Pharisees. So uh, it's not that... One is right and the other is wrong. This suggests that what the Pharisees are doing is really the mindset of this whole generation that Jesus is facing. Jesus' response shows us that he sees these religious leaders as embodying what that whole generation valued. The large crowds and the Pharisees and the teachers, they wanted the same thing. They wanted to see Jesus in some way prove that he's the Messiah. They wanted that in some way. I don't think they really wanted the proof. I think they wanted to force him to prove himself. Because I think what they really wanted was to stand back in, their, in themselves and reject him and live the lives that they're comfortable with. There's a lot, of, a lot of times people don't reject Jesus because there's lack of evidence. There's plenty of historical evidence. There's plenty of evidence from changed lives. There's evidence from what the church has done through the world. Uh, in spite of some of the church's failures. Okay? There's plenty of that, but the problem is some people don't want to say yes to Jesus because it means that we can't live the way we want to anymore. We've got to live his way. What we don't realize before the cross is the way he wants us to live is far more fulfilling than the way we wanted to live. It's better, but we, we can't see it with, without eyes of faith. We can't see that it's there. It tells us that they... And they use the word here, we want, we want to see a sign. We want or desire. It's a certain kind of word that's, that really softens the reality of what they're, what they're wanting, okay? So they desire, they wish, we wish to see a sign from you. You know, it's, it's like, uh, when somebody's using flowery language to butter you up, but they really mean something else, you know? We wish to see a sign from you. We want. They use that word. We we want or desire to see a sign. And sign here is uh, an event which is regarded as having some special significance. We don't know what kind of sign 
that Jesus could have performed that would have convinced them. Because what we know, he's already been doing signs and wonders and miracles. He's already been healing people. In fact, we're just coming from a miracle where he delivered somebody from a demon, but they reinterpreted that in a way that would suit their own selfishness. So they're already getting the sign. So what sign could he have done that would have convinced them? They were requesting a sign. Okay, so uh, what they're looking for is not really a sign but continual proof that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not enough for them that he's been performing the miracles. They wanted a Messiah which would fit nicely into their lives, and Jesus doesn't fit nicely into our lives. Do you know that's true? He doesn't fit nicely into our lives because what we would like to do is we'd like to take all of our lives and then place Jesus in there somewhere somewhere convenient. And that's almost like having a roommate, but you expect them not to mess with anything. You know, but the kind of roommate Jesus is, is the kind that starts coming in and throwing out junk, right? He's like, we don't need that anymore. That's spoiled. That's rotten. We need to get rid of that. You've got some mold here. We need to take care of that. You're like, whoa, Jesus, this building program is going way too fast for me. Slow it, slow it down. I don't know if I can handle this at this rate, but this is what he's about, is he doesn't fit neatly in our lives. He changes the dimensions of our lives. And, and here's the other thing about this uh, demand for a sign, this request for a sign. I won't mention this again in a moment, but the, the tense of this verb uh, that they're asking for a sign, they're wanting a sign, they're asking in just a moment, is that it's an insatiable thing that can never be satisfied. You give them one sign, and they want another. You give them one sign, and they want another. And it doesn't matter how many there are, they're always going to say, I need more, I need more, I need more. And uh, maybe you've run into people like that where they've asked legitimate questions. I remember hearing uh, one of the Chi Alpha leaders who was on the college campus uh, doing ministry on a college campus, and he had somebody that said to him, uh, came up, and he said, I've got these questions about Jesus. And, and he said, well, well, what are they? And the guy started, this real intelligent guy, I think he was a math major and super intelligent. I think he had uh, come from India to uh, be in the math program at this school. And so he had a lot of questions. And he said, well, what are your questions? And the guy shared his questions, and he answered them. And every time he'd answer a question, he'd come up with something else that was an obstacle for him. And finally, with wisdom, the guy said, I don't really think that's your problem. And I think he might have pointed at him and said to him, your problem is that you're not ready to surrender to a God like this. And he said the guy just broke down and began to weep. And he saw that God had his number. You see, sometimes we use things like this, like I need a sign, I need this evidence as a smokescreen to keep God at bay. I need more information, I need more time, I need uh, to know your plan a little better. Can you give me the ten steps that I need to take in order to do this. He's just saying, hey, turn to me and trust me. We'll get there. So this is the request, is we wish, we want, we desire to see you give us a sign. Remember, this is related to the fact that he's just cast a demon out, and they've reinterpreted that as he did it by the power of the enemy. So what's Jesus' response to all of this? Verse 39 and 40 show us how he responds. 
He says in verse 39, A wicked and an adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. How'd you like that? Like, you want a sign? Go back to your Bibles and read the story. This is the sign that you'll get. And so he doesn't point to the moment. He doesn't point necessarily to the future. He does indirectly. But he's pointing first to the past, to Scripture. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, I want to challenge us. If, if we're in the mode of always seeking God to prove something to us by signs, uh, let me point out the fact that here what Jesus does is he points back to Scripture. Okay, Let Scripture lead you. If you're asking questions like, God, do you really love me? If, if you really love me, will you cause a cloud to pass by the sun at this particular time? Don't look for that kind of thing because God's already shown you, shown us that he loves us in his word and he's demonstrated in the cross. We don't need stuff like that to prove his love. He's like, what do I got to do to please these people? How much do I have to do to prove that I love you? How much do I have to do to prove that I'm capable of, of managing your lives in a way that will bring glory? Well, they ask for a sign. He says, adulterous and wicked, a wicked and adulterous generation. Adultery, uh, in this context, is talking about unfaithfulness to God. And that's a pretty prominent uh, metaphor in the Old Testament for idolatry. When you're serving something else other than God, uh, the prophet always came and called them, you adulterous people. And sometimes with very vivid imagery, you'd be surprised how the Bible sometimes relates this. Uh, that they are adulterous, they're after these other gods. And so when he says that uh, you're an adulteress, you're a wicked and adulterous generation, he's talking about something in their lives that keep them from seeing the truth that's before them, and it's because their heart doesn't want to see it. They ask for a sign. In uh, The ESV says this uh, wicked and adulterous generation, verse 39, demands a sign. Uh, seeks, asks, demands. They continually strive for and demand a sign. So this is the the focus of this particular generation that Jesus is dealing with. They would they would rather have a sign than a savior. They'd rather have a sign than a savior, and they would rather have a sign than the true wisdom of following him. If they wanted to know what Jesus was about, they needed to listen to his words and not just look for something miraculous that he was doing. He was going to do the miraculous, and he did the miraculous, and they'd already seen the miraculous. But something else pointed to the nature of who he was, and that was his message, was a message of wisdom, that if they knew their scriptures, they should have seen the natural flow from the Old Testament scriptures into what the fulfillment in the New Testament was doing, but they didn't see it. They lost connection there. They wanted to see a sign because that was their out to keep Jesus at bay. Why does uh, he call them wicked and adulterous? Wicked here means morally corrupt, and adulterous means that they were being unfaithful to God. So their constant demand for a sign comes from their unreadiness to turn from their ways and let God be first. There's no itemized list of sins here. I wish, don't you wish they were? You could check them off and say, well, I'm done with that. I don't need that. The problem isn't so much sins itemized. It's sin. It's sin in the heart that they didn't want 
to follow God and they were rebellious. You can, you can have a certain form of legalistic righteousness where you check the boxes off and still in your heart be rebellious. Like, I'll, I'll do this. <laughs> you remember the little boy, his mom told him to sit down. And finally he said, okay, fine, I'll sit, but I'm standing in my heart. And that's sometimes the way we are, is we're standing in our heart. We're like, I'll do this, but I don't like it, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in agreement with this. This is, I think, really the explanation. They're not ready to welcome Jesus on his terms. And so they keep asking for proof, and when evidence is given, they demand more. Uh, as I said, it's unclear what kind of evidence would satisfy these people. When Jesus says, this generation asks for a sign, the form of the verb shows they keep asking and asking and asking with an appetite that can't be satisfied. You know what Mark says here? Mark says in uh, chapter 8, verse 12 at this incident that Jesus sighed deeply. And that uh, word could mean groan. Be like, oh, these people. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Causing Jesus to groan? Because we just want more and more evidence and it's like, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? He did plenty of miracles, but for this generation, his miracles uh, will never be enough. They want this authenticating evidence that his authority has come from God. And it reminds me a little bit of Gideon in the Old Testament. You remember Gideon was called by God, and that whole book of Judges starts off with this theme, that a uh, generation grew up that didn't know God or what he'd done for Israel. So there's some spiritual ignorance there. There's relational ignorance between those people and God. And so uh, God calls different people to be leaders, but they're, most of them aren't great people. Samson's not a great uh, example as a Christian. If you're using Samson as an example for your Christian life, you need to look somebody, somewhere else. Okay. But yet God used him. And Gideon, this, uh, the whole fleece thing, some people have tried to develop a whole approach to God based on this. And this was a uh, concession and not the rule. So what does he do? God says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Well, I don't feel tough. I don't feel brave. I'm calling you to go and we're going to defeat the Midianites, me and you. We're going to do this. And he says, well, if you're really sending me, Lord, then I'm going to put a piece of uh, sheep's wool on the ground. And in the morning, then cause there to be dew on that. Okay, And the ground around it dry. And then he wakes up the next day and picks it up. Sure enough, he wrings it out. Oh, what a bonehead. Of course, the wool is going to be wet. It's going to soak up all the water. So... God, if you're really speaking to me, let the fleece be wet or dry and the ground be wet around it with dew. And he, of course, wakes up the next day and that's exactly what happens. But you see, what God allows there is for Gideon, who doesn't have what seems to be the knowledge of God the rest of the Old Testament has. They don't know God or what he's done for Israel. And so he's dealing with them on a kindergarten level. That's not, that's not how Christians ought to live. If God speaks and we know that it's him speaking, that's enough. When I need to put out fleeces. Now, God might be gracious enough to answer our fleece, but I want you to know that usually means that we're at a more kindergarten level. Okay? So I challenge us, if God speaks, don't ask for tons of signs. Just say yes. Abraham would have been a perfect candidate to say, 
you know what? I need a fleece for that. Right? You're calling me to move 900 miles away to a place I've never been and live in tents? Uh, can you make that fleece wet and the ground dry? I'd like to have that. Or you're calling me to sacrifice my son on the mountain? I better talk this over with Sarah. He, I don't think he talked it over with Sarah. The Bible says he got up early the next morning. I imagine he got out of there before any questions could be asked. Right? Uh, he was Abraham over and over again when he hears God speak. He's obedient. He's not asking for tons and tons of signs to follow God. But this generation, they keep asking, God, will you give me, Jesus, will you give us a sign? And people still do this. God, if you're really real, show me by healing my eczema. Or if you love me, then let me have this job. If you love me, then let me have this job. And sometimes we're trying to prove to ourselves that God's real, and sometimes we're trying to get our way. You might remember the time in the wilderness when Israel complained about water. They tested the Lord by demanding water as proof that God was with them. In Exodus 17, 1 through 7, I don't read all that, but the end result, the last verse of that is this question. If, you know, will you provide water? We're out here, we're going we're gonna, to uh, die of thirst. Is the Lord among us or is he not? And so the, the challenge was thrown out. God, if you're really with us, provide water. And if you don't provide water, you're not with us. It's the same kind of thing. It's a demand for a sign. Now, they were really thirsty, but that's not the way we go about handling God. The Bible calls that testing God. And, of course, the wilderness generation demand all kinds of signs. It says the Pharisees came to him seeking a sign from heaven to test him. So this was even a test in, in uh, Mark chapter 8. Uh, Mark's version says that he uh, he uh, was asked this question as a test, and so these are these are signs of immaturity and sensationalism. When we'd rather see a sign than have real wisdom for following God, the people of Jesus' generation were wicked because they would rather see signs than no true wisdom. Do you know what I mean by that? I can tell you this happens today. We don't want to listen to solid biblical preaching. We want to see sensationalism. There's, there's people, I'm not saying you, I'm saying there are people out there, and I know uh, as a young Christian, that's what I would prefer. I want to see something sensational. And uh, I can't endure this boring, expository preaching. So I want to be clear what I mean by this contrast. I don't mean miracles are bad and that we should never ask for them where they're needed. And I don't mean that having a dislike for the miraculous is some kind of virtue. It's not. This really goes down to priorities. What's, mo- what's most important? And understand- understanding what Jesus is saying here, we have to place wisdom and these signs that they're asking for next to each other and ask, which do we love more, God's wisdom or the spectacular? If you love signs more, you may not get wisdom. But if you love wisdom, you may get signs thrown in. The early church prayed, as a matter of fact, in Acts four twenty nine through 30, Now, Lord, consider the threats of these religious leaders and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, 
the disciples, when they're praying that, they're not asking for proof that Jesus is the Messiah. You understand that? They already believe. What they're asking Jesus to do is to confirm his word so that people will see that he's truly, he's truly the Messiah that he has shown himself to be. So it's not one or the other. But when it comes down to take this or take that, we have to understand that what God wants us to do is seek wisdom and to trust ourselves into his hand. You know, it's still a, w- a wicked and adulterous generation which demands a sign to follow God. Please, please do yourself a favor. Uh, let's do ourselves a favor and take a chance on what he's already shown us about himself. It's going to be our loss if we don't. It's enough that the preaching of the gospel is a witness and that God may confirm the preaching of the gospel with miracles whenever he wishes. And it should be enough that God has impacted our lives and changed us and changed people that we know. And it's enough that Christianity has taken root and established itself in every culture and language. That ought to be enough to show us there's something to this. And if you'll take a chance on what you know, God will not disappoint. Finally, here let's talk about repentance, verse 41 and 42. So uh, wicked, this... Pharisees come representing the culture, the cultural expectation of Jesus. Will you show us some kind of uh, authenticating sign that you're the Messiah, that you're the one we're looking for? Show us that. Jesus says, your hearts are not right in asking that. He's not afraid to do the miraculous. Even when he says, my hour was not yet, he still turned the water into wine, right? So he's not afraid of that, but... Your hearts are wrong in asking this because of why they were asking. Now, if they're asking Jesus to come heal their child who's sick, Jesus would go with them and heal their child. Okay, That's not the same thing as what's happening here. This is the kind of pushing off, we expect you to do this one more thing for us, and then we might believe. Not we will believe, we might believe. And do this thing too, and then we might believe. Now, uh, Jesus comes with uh, a bombshell in verses 41 and 42. He drops a bombshell on these religious leaders and the people of his generation by bringing up two events that have to do with repentance. Notice uh, what it says here in verse 41, uh, actually in verse 40. For uh, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, if you were here when we were doing life verses, you remember that uh, the word that's used for big fish can mean even sea monster. So whatever it is that ate Jonah, it could be a whale, it could be a sea monster, it could be a fish, whatever it was that swallowed Jonah, uh, he was there three days and three nights. And so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it, for uh, she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So he brings up, he brings up in response to uh, their question, first the rebuke about uh, what what's wrong with them, and then this uh, this issue of repentance. He talks about the sign of Jonah, which is there's two events that seem completely 
unlike one another on the surface. If you want to turn here, this you might uh, find this to be uh, enlightening in Jonah chapter 2. If you'd like to turn to Jonah 2, it'd be good to, to take a moment to look at that. But from Jonah's perspective, you realize when he goes over into the drink, he thinks he's a goner. And he prefers that to going to Nineveh. Okay, so he thinks he's a goner. And, of course, the fish comes up and swallows him. And without God's intervention, Jonah is a goner. Listen to the song of Jonah in chapter 2. This is his song, his prayer. And I'll highlight a couple verses from this. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Listen to this. From deep in the realm of the dead. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Okay. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All of your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. There's hope. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. That's a really real picture, isn't it? To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me forever. Listen to this. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Is it appropriate that Jesus should compare his resurrection to Jonah? To the, to the depths? What does he say? To the realm of the dead? And then you brought my life up from the pit. So Jesus makes a very apt uh, relation to Jonah here. And he says, I'm not going to give you a sign except for the sign of Jonah. And they would have, the religious leader, the Pharisees, and especially the scribes. Do you know what the scribes did? They copied scripture. They had these verses memorized, word for word, and probably the Pharisees too. And so when they said Jonah, their mind could have begun at the first word of the book and quoted it all the way through, just in their mind. And they could have come to chapter 2 and read this very thing. And known Jesus is talking about something here that relates to him. This is the sign that will be given, that as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man will spend three days in the belly of the earth. And it's a correlation that he's making. So he's relating the story of Jonah to himself. All his listeners would have known that story. Jesus is using this to illustrate three days and three nights in the tomb, which he calls the belly of the earth. After three days, Jonah joined the land of the living again, puked up on the shore, ready to go on mission. And after that happens, he converts, he walks in and without, I love that story because I don't think he was an enthusiastic screaming preacher like, you know, 40 days, 40 days, you guys need to repent and excited about it. I think probably he had the least emotion of any prophet in the Old Testament because he doesn't want them saved. 40 days. What'd you say in that funny accent, sir? Uh, 40 days and God's going to destroy this place. What? And they all put on sackcloth, even their cows put on sackcloth, and they repented of their sins and turned away. Jonah didn't perform a miracle there. Some people think that the enzymes, there's a story of a, a fisherman that went overboard and was swallowed by a sperm whale off the Falkland Islands. And they hunted the uh, whale down, 
the crew did, and killed the whale, and the man was unconscious but still alive on the inside. And you know that uh, his skin was bleached from the enzymes inside the, the stomach of the fish. And so if maybe the sign that they saw was this ghostly white dude coming out of somewhere with a strange accent, and they thought, this is, this is Marley, you know, from <laughs> Christmas Carol or something. We don't know what this guy is from beyond the realm of the dead, and he's telling us God's going to judge us. Uh, we need to listen. It was some kind of a portent or an omen to them. The Jonah's uh, bleached white skin from being inside the well. I don't know what it was, but we don't we don't hear of him performing any miracle. We don't think he's probably excited, and yet the people heard the message and they repented. And Jesus is saying, "Look, it, these guys they don't even know our scriptures, and they turned to God from the message that was preached. You guys know the scriptures." And God himself is standing here in flesh, and you won't listen to him. What's wrong with that picture? The Ninevites are Gentiles. Do you know what these Pharisees thought of Gentiles? Not only do they not know the truth, they probably couldn't even grasp the truth if they knew it. And they're the ones that are going to stand in judgment over these guys. Oh, those guys must have gone home really mad. Their wives probably were like, what happened to you today? Well, Jesus told us the Ninevites are going to rebuke us in the judgment. That would have been something to see. So he mentions uh, the Ninevites. And so Jesus used that illustration to show this is the sign that you'll, you'll see. Three days and three nights and, and then a return and he'll be raised also. Then he mentions the queen of the south. Okay, notice uh, here in verse 41, it says the Ninevites repented. The queen of the south is talking about something different. You can find that story uh, in 1 Kings chapter 10 if you'd like to, or 2 Chronicles 9. Josephus mentions it in his antiquities. Uh, the south uh, most likely refers to either southwest Arabia, possibly uh, eastern part of Yemen. And there's tradition, especially in Josephus, that this refers to Ethiopia. Wherever it is, she came a ways to listen to wisdom. Okay, She was not Jewish. She was Gentile. And she came from her far place to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. This is a picture of somebody seeking out wisdom and going to great lengths to do so. She probably wanted to ask questions and see if she could stump the great mind of the age. But she came and went away believing the message, hearing the wisdom that was shared. She sought Wisdom. And these people, they're not seeking after wisdom. They're seeking after themselves. If they had sought wisdom, they would have turned to Jesus because he had wise words to say. The Bible tells us in one of the accounts, maybe it's in the Mark portion, it might even be uh, in the Luke portion, that it says that when Jesus finished speaking, people are amazed at his authority. He spoke as one with authority, not like the teacher of the law. And that comes right after this. So there's something about him that is obviously they're recognizing the power of his words and the wisdom of his words, but they're turning away from it, and they're asking for a sign instead. We don't want what you have to say. We want you to demonstrate something for us. So the queen of the south, because she sought wisdom, will rise up. At the, and the, the word for rise up, both in the, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, is a word that can mean to, to stand to your feet, but it can also mean to rise from the dead. 
So it could be talking here about the resurrection. And so he'll, they'll rise up in judgment over you. Now he not only said the Ninevites, but the queen of the south. The queen of the south. And these are, these are Gentiles. And this is a warning to these people to follow Jesus. It's a warning about, uh, because it reminds us that judgment day is coming. And Jesus talks as though some who had shaky starts have found their way to God, and, and those who had the good, solid foundation placed in their lives through the Scripture are going to be found wanting on the day of judgment. That's scary, isn't it? That, that not everybody who knew the Scriptures best may find their way to heaven, may find Jesus as their Lord. We can get academic about this, and we can use our theology and our Scripture. Theology is not bad, but you can use it as a, a veil as a kind of barrier of separation where you feel like you're dealing with the things of God, but you really aren't submitting to God. And so it can be this buffer zone where you feel like you're doing something spiritual, but it's not true relationship. Like if you studied a biography of one of your parents, if anybody has written a biography of your parents, if you studied that, you could feel like you knew them pretty well, but that's not the same thing as saying, Hello, Mom. Hello, Dad. And talking with them. It's different. This is also a warning about those surprises that will come in judgment. Those who think they're following God may find that their hidden motives are exposed. We sought after you. You didn't seek after me. You sought for a sign to keep me at bay. seems to me that there are Christians today who run around looking for the sensational. They're not interested in wisdom or anything which has to do with living for God in the quiet moments. Unfortunately, um, there's also spiritual vendors out there that will cater to that, will supply their wares. And The good news is it's usually a phase that serious Christians grow out of. I'm telling you, when I went to Bible college, I used to say, oh, man, boy, that's good preaching with... I'd hear somebody, and then after hearing people solidly expound the Word of God, I, th- I thought, I don't know what I saw in that. It was empty and vacuous. I want substance, don't you? I want truth. I want wisdom. And so hopefully it will be a phase. We're not going to grow out of the desire to see God do the miraculous. That's not the problem. Those who grow out will usually grow out of this needed continual proof of God's miraculous presence. They grow into a, a serious relationship where there's depth and security and faith. Like I think when you get older, you start to realize the relationship's not as shaky as I first thought it was. Now, you know what I'm saying by that? That God truly loves us. We're not driven by emotions. We're not needing this constant evidence that God loves us. We have the evidence, and we've become secure with that, and we know it. And so we're up and on to better things, to higher things. Do you think God wants us to sit around all the time worrying about whether he loves us or not? I don't think so. I think it's good for us to test our lives and ask ourselves, are we in the faith or not? But I don't think it's good for us to ask that question because God even loves sinners. He loves sinners. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us. So it's not about that. We've got to get past all of that. There's, uh, there are legitimate questions, and I don't think that, I don't think that uh, God's offended by the most sincere questions we have if we're asking from a desire to follow him. The Psalms have all kinds of questions like why and, and will you and how long, O Lord. And he might answer them and he might not. Jesus accommodated Thomas with honest questions. Like It wasn't that he was demanding a sign, but he's saying, I need to, I need to feel the nail holes. And Jesus says, all right, Thomas, I'm going to allow this, but there's going to be those who come that are going to believe even though they've never seen and they've never felt, and they'll be blessed. We need to know that God can see through our insincerities too. Um, We might fool ourselves, but we'll never fool him. Playing games like the Pharisees and the religious leaders and whoever these rebellious people were of this generation, playing games with God gets us nowhere. If you, you set up a series of obstacles through which Jesus has to pass, in order to have you follow him. He's not obligated to go along with it. You know that? He doesn't have to demonstrate over and over and over and over and over again that he loves you and that he can manage your life and that he can do the miraculous. He doesn't have to do that. He might. He might. But he's he's not obligated to do that. And he's given us enough evidence of himself for us to follow in the testimonies of others and what he's done for us and the example of history. I believe firmly that God is not asking us to have faith without evidence. I don't think that at all. I think he gives us evidence. I think faith is based on evidence, actually. But faith is also a decision to believe the evidence. You understand what I mean by that? We act as if sometimes our beliefs are something that accidentally happened to us. Like, oh, well, I just woke up one day and this is what I happen to believe. No, we make choices. And as we make choices, uh, we understand that our brains are being wired toward, to either go along a certain path or another path. You start following God, and your choices will lead you one, will lead you down the path that leads to Him. He's given us evidence. He's given us evidence of history. He's given us the eyewitness accounts that go along with that. He's given us evidence of real changed lives, of lives that have been transformed. People that had no way out that he had to be the reason that they're different. We've seen God do the miraculous. People healed of cancer. We've seen people who have uh, transformed from a life of purposelessness to a life that is glorifying to him. So there's plenty of evidence that's out there. But when we have the evidence, we have to decide what we're going to do, do with it. Jesus said when it comes to the wisdom that he has, the dividing line between wise and foolish is what people do or don't do with his words. And I would suggest if you need further proof of what uh, Christ can be and what he'll do, that you take a chance. Take a chance on him. Step out in faith and see if God won't meet you there. And I'm not talking about being presumptuous or foolish. I'm saying if, you, if you're not sure about how real Jesus is and what a change he can make, if you have any inkling that this is true, 
put your faith there and step out and see if God doesn't meet you in it. There's never 100% proof that's offered which excuses us from taking responsibility for our beliefs. There's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of ways also that we can slip through the evidence into unbelief. These Pharisees, Jesus cast a demon out of a man, and you would think that everybody would go, yes, he's working on the good side. But instead, they took that evidence and said, oh, he's working on the bad side against the bad side. You understand that how foolish that is? But we can skew the evidence for however we want to follow, whatever we want to follow. But we can use uh, that evidence, past experiences with God, miracles, which can't be explained, the Word of God, and believe it, or we can explain it away. At some point, relational risk is necessary. From our side, there's not certainty, only conviction. It's certain on God's side. He knows it's true. And there is a truth that's out there, but even when we see it, we don't always grasp it. What the doubters should have done was take the evidence that was given and humble themselves and believe. Believing in Jesus is not having all the answers and no questions. After all, the disciples, they didn't know, and they had a lot of questions. They were choosing to place their lives in his hands regardless. And sometimes when they didn't have all the information, they had to suspend judgment and trust him anyway. And that's, that's true of us, that sometimes there are things that are troubling and perplexing to our faith, like, why do bad things happen to good people? And why is this happening? I'm trusting you. And we don't know why. And some things are uh, issues that relate to eternity that we'll know then when we can see things from a different perspective. There's a verse in Scripture that talks about the hidden things belong to the Lord, the revealed things belong to us and our children. There are some hidden things you have to just trust God with and because of the other things you know about him, which are true. Are you with me on that? That when you have somebody that you really, really know and something calls into question what you know about them, you suspend judgment until you find out more information, right? And that's uh, what God's asking us to do here. Um. And so these disciples, their convictions grew as they were willing, uh, eventually willing to completely lay their lives down for him. And I don't mean God's promises are not certain. I, I mean, they are, but our apprehension of them is not perfect. There's always ways not to believe. And if you're looking for signs, they can even lead us astray. Second Thessalonians 2.9 says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Do you hear that? That signs and wonders can even serve the lie. So we have to be careful. It's not just in signs and wonders. We need to know the fruit of a life. In 12.6, this is kind of interesting to me. I'm, I'm really drawing to a close here. We're in the last couple paragraphs. In 12.6 of Matthew, uh, Jesus is greater than the temple, and by inclusion, he's greater than the priesthood. Okay. In uh, verse 41, uh, we, sh- we see that he's greater than the prophet, Jonah. A greater than Jonah is here. And in verse 42, Solomon, the king, a greater than Solomon is here. And so in this chapter, chapter 12, Jesus shows himself superior to the priests, the prophet, and the king. 
He is the greatest fulfillment of all those offices. And his wisdom is worth trusting. Okay, but they couldn't see it. They held him at bay. So we're faced here with the wisest man who ever lived. He died for us. He rose again. He promised forgiveness to those who believe him. Those who walk with him, he'll lead in a way of wisdom. So my question is, uh, will you walk with him today? I think there may be some people here who are faced with an area of life where choosing to follow Jesus has been hard. Why don't we, why don't we stand and we'll uh, prepare to respond to what God wants to do. Maybe you've been asking for proof that he's trustworthy. Hasn't he already given us enough evidence that he's, he's trustworthy? Christ has three characteristics that are true of any good leader. Uh, first, uh, the, a good leader cares, loves, loves. He loves us. And the second is a good leader has wisdom. A good leader will make wise decisions. Jesus is the wisest of all. And then third, a good leader has ability. Maybe you'd say power here, power. Power, love, wisdom. And if Jesus has all of those, then he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And if he's invited us to to come and to give our lives to him and to, uh, to live under his love, wisdom, and power, then we should do it. And I'm not just talking to people here today who may not be Christians. I'm talking to us as Christians. We have to make this choice again every day. Okay. The flesh gets up out of bed and says, this is what I want. And God's word comes with its demands. And God's spirit uh, echoes to us the same thing. How are we going to respond? What are we going to do? And so I want to invite you today to respond to the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.